Our text this morning, Psalm 35. Our topic, David believes that the Lord will be a shield and buckler against those who hate him. The title of our message, Hatred Alert, Raise Shields. Get it? Star Trek, Red Alert, Raise Shields. Father, despite my ridiculous title, I pray that we would uh, have a a really wonderful time in, in your word this morning, Psalm 35. Lord, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would direct these verses to each individual life, each person that's listening right now. We deal with some general topics, Lord, of of just uh, evil and wickedness and suffering and those kinds of things. But we come to you with specific life issues, very specific concerns. We ask that these words would speak to those that we would understand that we've been in the presence of the living God by the anointing of your spirit, Lord, by him ministering to each heart. If there's anyone here or listening that's not a believer, we pray that your spirit would work in them to convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come so that they could join this forever family and have the safety of their own soul known to them. So be with us, Lord, as we go verse by verse. And uh, as we make our comments, I pray that they would make sense in a spiritual sense. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Who would be your pick for the greatest bodyguard in film history? Frank Farmer. Kevin Costner saves Whitney Houston in the film appropriately titled The Bodyguard. Then there was another Frank, Frank Horrigan. Clint Eastwood is the Secret Service agent who redeems himself by saving POTUS in the line of fire. Don't forget Doug Chesnick. Nicholas Cage rises to the occasion protecting a former president's widow in the movie Guarding Tess. Can we think of the Lord as a sort of bodyguard? Or maybe we would say a body and soul guard? In verses 2 and 3, David says to the Lord, take hold of shield and buckler, stand up for my help, also drought the spear. And stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. David needed protecting from his many enemies who sought his destruction and death. He appealed to the Lord to protect him, employing the analogy of an armed guard. David's song gives us an opportunity to better understand the Lord as the protector of his people and of his unique style of protection. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, what you can expect from the Lord's protection And number two, what you can expect the Lord's protection from. Let's take a look in verses 1 through 10 at what you can expect. What I do have are a particular set of skills, skills I've acquired over a very long career. That's part of the speech that launched the Taken movie franchise. We're introduced to the Lord's particular set of skills in these opening verses. And so obviously verse 1, a psalm of David, we're not told what the occasion is. Uh, we can't even really speculate in this psalm. Uh, There are many occasions that fit this. Uh, Certainly David had many times of trouble like this. He says, plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive against me. Fight against those who fight against me. The first thing to notice, often overlooked, is that David understands the Lord will first plead with his enemies. Before he says to fight them, he says plead with them. 
It's an important reminder to us that the spiritual well-being, the salvation of our enemies must always factor into our thinking. God remains long-suffering towards them, even though it often means that our troubles and trouble in the world will continue. David's going to use strong language about his desire that he's delivered from these enemies, but he first acknowledges the Lord's own perspective and says, plead with them. It would be better if they repented and relented of their evil and came into the sphere of understanding the grace and love of the Lord. And so whatever trouble you find yourself in when it involves other people, first understand that we must ask the Lord to plead uh, uh, with them and to come into his family. When necessary, the Lord will fight against enemies. And his fighting is described for us in verses two and three. Take hold of shield and buckler, which is a different type of shield, a bigger shield, and stand up for my help. Also draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. There's always that scene where the hero is choosing his weapons for the coming warfare. Here are the Lord's weapons, according to David. The Lord can choose defensive weapons, shield and buckler, and stand to protect us. He has offensive weapons like the spear that he can wield to stop any enemy in order to protect us. In one case, we would remain untouched and unscathed, the Lord stopping our enemy. In the other, we're being fired upon. I'd rather the Lord go on offense. I don't like the fiery darts of the enemy hitting the shield. You've seen these, this type of warfare depicted in uh, film. They put up the shield and the spear comes through it and stops an inch from their eyeball, you know, and stuff. And you say, oh, wow, this is going to be some kind of fierce battle. And so, you know, it seems like that so often in the Christian life, doesn't it? That you're like behind some kind of a shield wall and you can hear like in the, you know, the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland, if we ever get to ride that again, where you go through that one tunnel and they're shooting dark and the air blows on you and you start screaming. But anyway, I alluded earlier that the Lord is not just a bodyguard. He is a body and soul guard. That helps us understand that why with all his weaponry, the enemy seems to advance against us and even wound us. David says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Simply put, some attacks are not repelled in order that you may experience the Lord's spiritual protection of more than just your body. In your vulnerability, God can reveal to both you and onlookers, I am your salvation. This would be a great summary of the book of Job, right? God removed some of the physical protection that Job had known in order that Job could learn that God was protecting his soul and that his soul was absolutely safe in the Lord. Jesus once pointed out, he said, do not fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Your enemies cannot kill the soul. Think of all the stories of the martyrs. And just as they're about to be beheaded or burned or torn apart by wild beasts, they're confident that their enemy can do nothing to touch their soul and that in moments they will be absent from that body and present with the Lord. Your enemies can't kill the soul. And when the Lord allows them to trouble you physically, it's so you can clearly see your soul's safety. A quick doctrinal note. Mankind is a trichotomy of spirit, soul, and body. Uh, When we're born, we are soulishly active and our physical body is alive. Uh, We need to be born again to have our spirit 
alive and in control of us. So this morning when I talk about soul, I'm really, I'm really talking more about the kind of soul-spirit combination, talking about believers who believe in the Lord. And I guess for lack of a better term, I'm talking about you uh, that isn't the physical part of you. Uh, it's, it's, you know, your body may be perishing, but your soul going on for eternity. Now in the movies, the gangs or the gangsters offer protection. And that protection is usually from themselves, right? You've seen those films, mostly Italians who go around to the different stores and they, you pay their, for their protection. And if you don't pay for their protection, then they shoot you, uh, or they burn your building down or something like that. Non-believers think the Lord is running a protection scheme because he allows all this evil in the world and then he acts like he can do something about it, but he doesn't. They accuse him of not doing anything about it or being indifferent at best, but it's short-sighted on their part. He has done something. He is moving on the earth. He will end evil, but his long-suffering waits. Maybe it waits for you if you're not a believer. That's, the, that's really true. Uh, the Lord, you know, you read the Bible from first to last, Alpha to Omega, and you find out that there is an amazing plan for the redemption of the human race and of creation itself. And God is right on schedule with that plan. And though it seems like it's been a long time of human history, it's, it's a pittance compared to eternity. Uh, and, and one thing we learn is that God is saving people. As we've talked about several times, God is going to end up with a, a, a creation, a human being that has free will and is not able to sin, uh, something like him. Not a God, still a human being, but God is a free will being who is incapable of sin, and one day so will his children. They will be free will beings, not like Adam and Eve, but unlike them in the sense that they will be unable to sin. Not forced not to sin, they just won't have it in their nature anymore. And, and that takes a while to produce that kind of an individual. And in the meantime, God is calling people into to being born again, to be saved, to end up in heaven with him. And for some of us in any audience, if the Lord had accelerated this 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, you would not have been saved. I'm not saying you couldn't get saved after that but you wouldn't have been saved and the great tribulation would have probably hit after the rapture and you would have been in serious, serious trouble because the world is going to be even more deceitful and wicked in that time. Signs and wonders being produced by the antichrist and the false prophet. And so the reason God hasn't, he's doing something, but the reason he hasn't dropped, you know, pushed the button as it were is because he's waiting for people to get saved. And we need to remember that as believers as well. Verse four, let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. Angel of the Lord is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. He commands a heavenly host of angels. David sees the angel of the Lord causing his enemies to retreat. And as they do, they're confused, they're in the dark, they're along a slippery path. And we see this oftentimes in the Old Testament where the presence of the Lord or the terror of the Lord falls upon uh, Israel's enemies and they literally break ranks and, f and flee for no apparent reason. Verse seven, for without cause, they have hidden their net for me in a pit. 
which they have dug without cause for my life, let destruction come upon him unexpectedly and let his net that he has hidden catch himself into that very destruction, let him fall. Sounds a little harsh, was it? If you do any of your own study of the Psalms, you won't get too far before you hear or read the term imprecatory. Uh, people try and divide the Psalms in different ways and organize the Psalms. And one thing they'll tell you is that there are a slew of Psalms that are called imprecatory Psalms. Now, like you, I hate it when scholars use words that we never use in our daily life. Uh, when's the last time you used the word imprecatory? I mean, really? Uh, so here's what it means. An imprecatory Psalm are, is a Psalm that invokes judgment, calamity, or curses upon your enemies or those perceived as the enemies of God. And there's a, there's a handful of these type of psalms. And though the question comes up from them, can Christians pray imprecatory prayers? And there's a lot of bad answers to that. Uh, the worst has something to do with the fact that, well, that was the Old Testament. Now we're in the New Testament, New Covenant. It fosters the idea that somehow God was different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. Even though Jesus said, if you've seen me, who have you seen? You've seen the Father. Father and I are how many? One. How were people saved in the Old Testament? By grace through faith in the coming of the Messiah. And so there were different ways God related to people. We believe in dispensations. Uh, but essentially, it's not the fact that the Old Testament was, you know, pretty crazy. A lot of weird things went on there. But, you know, it's not that God wants to kill people. But Jesus says, please, Father, I died for them. No, it's all it all flows together. But the better answer is that we can pray imprecatory prayers because, in fact, we do it all the time without knowing it. Let me elaborate before you start to call curses down upon someone. The last book of the Bible ends by saying, even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's Revelation twenty-two twenty. Have you ever prayed that prayer or thought that thought? I think of it all the time, many times a day. It is essentially imprecatory. The chapters preceding it, beginning with chapter 6, delineate the awesome wrath of God that is coming upon the whole world. They delineate the final judgment of men and supernatural beings who will be thrown alive into the lake of fire to suffer eternal conscious torment. And so to pray for the Lord to come, you're knowing that that judgment is going to come upon non-believers. You're, you're not really praying down the judgment upon them, but you're acknowledging that the next step is judgment for them. And it is imprecatory in that nature. Notice, too, that imprecatory prayers acknowledge that the Lord has been reaching out to the lost, seeking to save them. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Remember, David opened with plead for them. And so there's this pleading going on. Most, if not all, imprecatory prayers we encounter in the Bible are against the wicked in general and not against an individual. Certainly, we would agree that those who absolutely in the end have refused to repent and give their lives to Christ deserve the judgment that they're going to get. This is true in our Psalm. David does not specify a particular person. He speaks of the wicked generally. In the Revelation, the Apostle John wrote, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. The imprecatory prayer is answered. It was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed was completed. 
And, and so we see this interaction, these martyrs, these tribulation martyrs saying, hey, how much longer is this going to go on before we are vindicated? And the Lord says, I'll take care of that. Uh, there are a lot more of you that need to be killed before this is over. And so it's, it's a very interesting kind of a thing looking at it that way. Notice that their bodies were not protected. They were martyred, but their souls were safe uh, as they witnessed the grace of God's wrath during the great tribulation. Verse nine, and my soul shall be uh, joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like you delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. Soul is prominent in David's mind. He understood he could always be joyful by rejoicing in the safety of his soul. No matter what's going on in your life or my life right now, if you're a believer, God says your soul is safe. I'm allowing certain things to happen to you physically. Number one, this is the world we live in. It's a world that is uh, filled with sin and evil and decadence and those kinds of things. Not that you're in, you know, going for those things or imbibing of those things, but it's just the world around us. We're in the middle of a global pandemic, for example, and that's the world in which we live. Uh, and so uh, yet David knew that whatever happened to him physically, his soul was safe in the Lord's hands. And that's true of you. You're, you are safe if you're a believer. To be absent from your body, which is, I guess, the worst thing that could happen is to be present with the Lord. And so whether you're martyred or whether you die a natural death or a sudden death or whatever, it, you, you can yet be joyful. As to physical help, the Lord could deliver from him who is too strong for him, for sure. But the saint might suffer being plundered. Daniel's three friends have been my go-to example for years. I can't think of another Bible story that puts it better. When King Nebuchadnezzar threatened to burn them alive, they replied, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Now that's where I always want to stop. That, that's, that's the prayer that I want to be able to pray. But they go on and they say, if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. And so they thought, hey, we're going to be delivered one way or the other. They didn't see it as a problem. Say, God's going to deliver us. If he doesn't, we're going to be ultimately delivered because our souls are safe. So burn us. Try and burn us if you can. And if God wants us to go home, we'll burn. If not, we won't. The Lord isn't the punisher. He isn't like the Terminator who had to do whatever young John Connor told him to do. He is your body and soul guard with a particular emphasis or skill set on your soul. We say that experience is the best teacher. You will sometimes need to have your physical protection removed to a certain extent in order to experience and therefore truly appreciate the Lord's protection of your soul. Here's what you can expect the Lord's protection from in verses 11 through 28. I've been noticing people asking the question, what was your aha moment? Have anybody heard that? People say, what was the aha moment for you? I watched Shark Tank. Uh, I think it's fascinating to see how people think. Uh, but they have been asking that for a while now. They, they'll ask potential invest, the potential investors will ask the person, you know, who wants them. I say, well, what was your aha moment? 
Meaning, when did you realize this was a great idea or a great business or, you know, they want to know the gist of it so they can see the passion that the person has for it. We're going to encounter an aha moment in Psalm 35, 21, but it's not a good one. In fact, most of the aha moments in the Bible are attributed to wicked people doing or saying bad things. The worst of them is recorded in the Gospel of Mark, where we read at the cross of Jesus, and I quote, those who passed by blasphemed Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days. And so not the aha moment you want to be known for. As we read on, I won't spend too much time discussing the particular actions of the wicked because it's self-explanatory. We're going to kind of look at David's experience of his protection from them because that's what we're asking for. Verse 11, fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I don't know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. The soul that the Lord is protecting nevertheless experienced sorrow. You are going to be hurt emotionally and otherwise passing through this world on your way homeward to heaven. When you do, the Lord will be your comforter. Remember, Jesus said he would send another like himself, another comforter. And we refer to the Holy Spirit as our comforter, obviously. And you, you know this. It's not rocket science. If you need a comforter, you are in some discomfort. You have to be uncomfortable or need comfort in order for somebody to come along. You ever, you ever have somebody think there's something wrong with you and they, they really bother you? Hey, what's the matter? I want to help you. Yeah, I'm fine. No, no, really, you can talk to me. I'm fine. What's wrong with you? You. <laughs> the only thing I can really think of right now is you. You're what's wrong with me. But, uh, you know, they want to come alongside and help you. And uh, other times you're just really hurting, right? I mean, you're just, you're just right at the end and somebody will sense it. The Holy Spirit will send them into your life and you'll start bawling. And, of course, now you have to do it six feet away and they throw tissue at you and you know, that kind of thing. It's a whole new world we live in now, but you understand what I'm saying. So, you know, every time you think, oh, Lord, what a great thing. God is my comforter. You think, well, wait a minute. I don't want to need a comforter. That implies something is, is very uncomfortable and very wrong. And so uh, you just can't escape this stuff. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting. My prayer would return to my own heart. I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. There must have been a huge sackcloth industry in Israel. Sackcloth Fifth Avenue or something like that, right? Get it? There is a place. Yeah, anyway. Gino was thinking about this and he says, you know, they were probably like these twin stores. You your sackcloth here and your ashes next door, you know, so matching ashes, depending on the color of your sackcloth. I'd like to bring sackcloth back. This is my aha moment this morning. Just open up a sackcloth and ashes store and just, you know, instead of wearing it around here, you know, it's interesting around here. I don't want to get too deep into this because I'll, I'll get flamed for it. But funeral attire in Kings County is really different than I've been used to down in Southern California. Almost always, at least the pallbearers wore a suit around here. And I don't, I'm not against it. But almost always here, the pallbearers have a collar, uh, you know, as opposed to their T-shirt. Uh, and that's it. And really nice jeans that I think they keep just for the occasion. Uh, and their cleanest hat, uh, or ball, baseball hat. And, and so it's, it's just interesting. Pam will sometimes say, you're not wearing that, are you? And I go, honey, I will be the best dressed person at this funeral. <laughs> you can't go out like that. You don't look like. And, uh, you know. 
So why don't we just go with sackcloth? Everybody come in with their different, and we could get into bedazzled sackcloth, and you know you could do stuff to it, but sackcloth and ashes. But David is saying, look, uh, I prayed for these. I love these people that hate me. When it says his prayer returned to his own heart, it's a way of saying he prayed with his head bowed so low as if he was talking into his chest. I mean, he had real emotion and love for these people. It's obviously worse when people you love and have ministered to are the ones that are against you. And I would hope that you would never have to experience that, but all of you have, I'm sure. Verse 15, in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me. I didn't know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. And so David is saying, I found out that everybody got invited to dinner but me. And while uh, the reason I didn't get invited is because they all wanted to gnash their teeth at me. It was like they declared an anti-David holiday that I was spared from. And what a terrible thing to find out that people are not only against you, but they're getting together behind your back to, to plot evil against you. Verse 17, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. How long indicates David thought it was taking too long. You don't ask that if you, if you think it's right on schedule. Even to him, the Lord seemed to be an onlooker doing nothing. He believed, however, that he was precious to the Lord. We might here recall the analogy of gold being purified by fire. Gold is precious. And the fire gets the impurities to rise to the surface as the, uh, the jeweler is working with it. And so David said, look, I, it's been a long time. Hasn't it been long enough? But I, in general, I know that you, my life is precious to you. And so, you know, I, maybe this is David's way of saying, hey, let's get to the end of this. I know what you're doing and I want to get to the end of it. Verse 18, I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. I believe David did this during his trouble, not just after it. He refused to isolate himself in his trouble. He knew the fellowship of the saints needed him and he needed them. We, we have to tell ourselves or each other our stories and what our, our lives are going through. We have to pray for each other and minister to each other and confess our faults to one another and do all the other one another things. I haven't recommended it in a long time because I haven't thought about it, but if you want to have a, a good Bible study, Find all the one another verses in the New Testament and, and make a list of all the things we are supposed to be doing to one another or with one another in the body of Christ. Verse 19, let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but they devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. And they also open their mouth wide against me and said, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. David was blameless, not sinless, but blameless. In this case, he had done nothing to deserve the treatment he was receiving. David gets a lot of um, bad press, obviously. He does a lot of terrible things, really wicked things. But he repents, and he's a man after God's own heart throughout. And, but it tends to let us think sometimes, maybe we don't consciously say it, but we sometimes think David is just reaping what he deserves. Well, that's... God is a God of grace. He doesn't make us reap what we deserve. We, there may be consequences to our actions, obviously, but we don't, you know, he's not punishing us. And, and so in this case, David can say, I am blameless. And these people are wrong. And that can be true. There are times when someone is wrong and they are offending a blameless individual. 
So we don't like to call out sin. And so we let it go on around us when sometimes, you know, hey, you're wrong. I have to do this in marriage counseling, which is what makes me so popular. Sometimes, and it's not, it's funny up here, but it's tragic. You know, sometimes you have to say, hey, you are wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And by wrong, I mean, it's sinful. Or I have to say, hey, there's no sin here. So what you're doing is wrong. And so it's not, now I understand that, you know, in a marriage, not, you know, both partners are sinners, but you can't go half and you can say, well, let me deal with you. Let me, sometimes what is actually happening the issue is wrong. You're in sin at this time. Repent, and then we'll move on to the next issue or whatever and stuff. So um, you can be, none of us will ever be sinless, but we can be and we should be blameless. Verse 22, this you have seen, O Lord, do not keep silence. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself. Awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God and my Lord. This is kind of a bold prayer to pray to God. Wake up. <laughs> as if God is slumbering. But again, this is a how long speech. He knew his troubles would come to an end, but not how long it would take. All our troubles will one day be ended. Some in this life on earth as new creatures in Jesus, some in heaven as new creations in forever bodies fit for eternity. You ever thought you were going to die? I mean, some of you are in very dangerous professions perhaps, and you literally had that moment when you thought, this is it, I'm just going to die. It's a fascinating thing. I've had a couple of those. Um, you know, I told one story, first service, here's my other story. They both take place in the Philippines, which is where people go to die. But anyway, no. So we're in the Philippines, and, and um, they have these bonka boats. And they're these, like, think of an Indian canoe, or like a, the canoes at Disneyland with a, a pontoon. It's got a lawnmower engine, for real. And then the drive shaft is a piece of pipe. And there's a little propeller on the back. And there's like way too many hot, fat Americans in these boats because we didn't want to take three or four. We didn't want to take four. We took three. And so they take you out, I don't know how many miles, maybe a mile, let's say a mile, out onto the Pacific Ocean and around this uh, thing. And you're at, at Apu Island. And what a beautiful place. I mean, just beautiful beach, lots of, you know, snorkeling and just fun. And we have a picnic out there. And I mean, the water is glass. I mean, you're on the Pacific Ocean and it's glass. I mean, you have my hand and you're, you're like maybe, I mean, you're down below the water level. The water's right here, you know, and so it's just crazy. But what a beautiful ride out there. So we get ready to come back and we come around that rock. And man, it's like, it's way choppy. I mean, it's, it's bad. And first thing happens, all three boats get separated. And then we start drifting, I don't know if it was north or south, but away from where we wanted to be. And the little, God bless him, the Filipino pilot or captain, whatever, he's got a little pith helmet on and he's like, you know, little propeller about the size of my hand and, and he just can't control this thing. One of the boats I found out later almost capsized, but one of the guys in there jumped out and grabbed the pontoon and was in the ocean. And, and I thought, you know, this is it. This thing's going to go down. Uh, there's, we were making no progress getting to shore. There's no way. Uh, and, and there's no, you understand, there's no Coast Guard or emergency services or anything like that. You're just on your own with no life jacket. 
And I thought, well, you know, back when I used to scuba dive, I could swim 25 yards if I had to. I said, so, and we're like a mile. So I did the math and I thought, I'm just going to drown here in the Pacific Ocean. At least I'm on a mission trip. They can say he died doing what he loved, <laughs> you know. But um, we were all pretty calm, you know, as far as just, hey, if this is it, this is it. Not just me, but all of us, you know. Nobody was freaking out except the poor pilot, <laughs> you know. But uh, he had no place to go either. He couldn't bail. Uh, and it was just, it's interesting to think you're going to die. I mean, to be in a situation where you think, hey, you know, I mean, we, we could all die today. We could all go to Taco Bell and die. I mean, you know, so, but I'm sorry. I don't, I've never liked Taco Bell. Anybody here work for Taco Bell or own stock in Taco Bell? Do you work for Taco Bell? Oh, we'll see. Former employees. But anyway, uh, this is what always happens to me. I get so confused and off track. But, uh, you know, if you think you're going to die uh, and you have that moment, you think, well, this could, this could be all right. I'll miss my family. I'll miss the church, but, you know, that's going to go like that and we'll all be together again. David could pray for deliverance without cursing his enemies. He did so by leaving vindication to the Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, verse 24, according to your righteousness and let them not rejoice over me. He repeated for emphasis that vindication must be the Lord's doing. It almost always fails when you try to clear or defend yourself. Satan is too good an accuser with too much experience to be overcome by your protestations. His strategies cannot be met with the energy of the flesh. While you're fighting one battle, he's planning another attack. And it's always, the, the web is always so tangled and, and it, you just can't even break it apart. And so you have to meet it spiritually. You have to meet it by saying, Lord, you defend me not going to rally troops around me. I'm not going to have meetings. I'm not, it doesn't mean you're quiet. I mean, you can say, hey, that's just not true. That's a lie. That's not true, or however you want to put it. But you, you can't mount a, a, an equal campaign against that person. And you certainly can't take that person to court and say, okay, I'm going to let the secular authorities deal with this. That's even worse. And so you just have to bide your time, speak the truth in love, and let the Lord deal with it. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, so we would have it. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. He speaks of clothing here, and it always reminds me when I see that, that heaven sees us clothed very differently than we appear on the earth. David was being held in shame and dishonor as if he was wearing, you know, the clothes of a, as if, you know, you're out in public and, and somebody's walking around with an orange suit on that says CDC on the back, you know, and stuff You're like, huh, I love that sign. I love it on the way through Corcoran that says, don't pick up hitchhikers, <laughs> just awesome to me. I picked up a guy with an orange suit on, he said he was, uh, no, never mind. And so David, that's how he looked in one sense. But uh, he wasn't wearing garments of shame and dishonor. The Lord saw him differently. And so uh, I've many times asked you, how, how are you dressed with heaven looking on? Everybody starts off clothed in filthy rags. So, so if, if uh, this was a fashion thing, if you're, God's trying to explain what it means to be saved, he says, when I see you as a human being, because of sin, I see you dressed in filthy garments and you can't get into heaven because there's a strict dress code. And you'll never be allowed in with those. And you can't wash yourself. 
can't buy other garments. You're just out there in filthy rags. In fact, your filthy rags are the best you could do. When you believe God, the Bible says he justifies you and declares you righteous. You're not righteous, but he declares you righteous because of what Jesus did on the cross, dying for your sins. And he portrays that by saying, think of yourself as taking off those filthy garments and putting on a white robe of righteousness. Now that's how I see you. And you are able to come to heaven with that robe. And so David says, hey, they see me as clothed with garments of shame and and all that. But Lord, I know that you see me in my righteousness. He says in verse 27, let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. And so he mentions righteous and righteousness. By righteous, it seems that he meant that, uh, that others, if they wanted to, could see that he was in the right by how he was responding. Think of it this way. Someone comes to you with gossip and slander and backbiting of someone else, accusing them. Who's the one that is righteous? The one that is sinning overtly? And we always, as Christians, we have a way of making this kind of speech sound like it's necessary. I shouldn't be telling you this, but what that guy did was so much worse than what I'm doing right now that you have to hear this. And the truth is, you know in your spirit that, hey, I shouldn't be listening to this. Even if this is true, let's say that the stuff that he's accusing Gene of is true. Well, he and Gene need to get together and solve this. And if they can't, then we'll get some elders involved. I mean, there's a way of dealing with these things that doesn't involve sin or drawing people into sides and things like that. Uh, And and so, you know, when somebody's wrong and sometimes you have to say, oh, wait a minute. Instead of six feet, I want you 10 feet away from me because I don't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole. What you're you may not think it, but what you're doing right now sounds a lot like gossip. And so maybe the two of you should work it out. David certainly hoped for prosperity to return. He very much wanted the Lord to act on his behalf. While he waited, he remained convinced of the Lord's soul care. Psalm 35 portrays the Lord in the role of a body and soul guard. Keep in mind that there are many other analogies that fully describe the Lord in relationship to us when they're all put together. We know that the Lord is the potter. He works with us as he does clay. As a potter, he sometimes applies more pressure and sometimes less, sometimes faster on the wheel, sometimes slower in order to mold us into the image that he has in mind. We all think about life going too slow, God's taking too long, right? Then other times we say we're spinning out of control. God is the potter and he controls all of that while he's putting pressure on to make you the vessel that he wants you to be. He's the refiner, as we saw, turning up the heat to remove impurities, all the while treating us as precious. And we can be sure he won't overheat us. I've made mistakes doing craft projects. In fact, I've never done a craft project that I didn't make a mistake. Never done anything uh, crafty or with my hands that wasn't a mistake. But, you know, you, you might think, oh, man, I, you know, I turned away for five seconds and now that gold is all boiled out and it, I, I need to just throw it away. Well, God doesn't do that with our preciousness. He works with it intently, always focused on it to bring out all the impurities and leave us with the pure. He's a shepherd. He'll lead us as his sheep. But sometimes that takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's a vine dresser. But that means he's going to lift us up and prune us as his fruit. In my research, I came across a song by Blind Willie Johnson. Trouble will soon be over. Here are some of the lyrics. 
Oh, trouble will soon be over. Sorrow will have an end. Well, Christ is my burden bearer. He's my only friend till the end of my sorrow and tells me to lean on him. Oh, trouble will soon be over. Sorrow will have an end. God is my strong protection. He's my bosom friend. Trouble arose all around me. I know who will take me in. Oh, trouble will soon be over. Sorrow will have an end. He proved a friend to David and hit him in a cage. The same God that David served will give me a rest someday. Trouble will soon be over. Sorrow will have an end. Although my burden may be heavy, my enemies crush me down. Someday I'll rest with Jesus and wear that starry crown. Trouble will soon be over. Sorrow will have an end. I'll take this yoke upon me and live a Christian life. Take Jesus for my Savior. My burden will be light.